Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a debate within the foreign policy establishment between those who want to increase the arming of Ukraine as Putin intensifies his brutal campaign to destroy the country, and those who want to seek a diplomatic solution to end the war. Joining us is Angela Stent, the director of the Center for Eurasian, Russian and East European Affairs and a professor of government and foreign affairs at Georgetown University. She is also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and co-chairs its Hewlett Forum on Post-Soviet Affairs. From 2004 to 2006, she served as national intelligence officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council. And from 1999 to 2001, she served in the Office of Policy Planning at the United States Department of State and is the author of The Limits of Partnership, U.S.-Russian Relations in the 21st Century. And her latest book is Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the Rest. Then we'll look into the new report from the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy and the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights that accuses Russia of inciting genocide and violating several articles of the United Nations Genocide Convention. Joining us is an advisor to this legal report signed by more than 30 legal scholars and genocide experts, Christopher Atwood a graduate student at Columbia University who spent a number of years in the post-Soviet space working in media, advertising, journalism and politics. He served as a senior advisor on media, communications and journalism at the Susplanist Foundation in Kiev, Ukraine, and his research focuses on contemporary challenges in international relations, the development of national identities in East Europe and the impact of information campaigns on social, cultural and political trends. Then finally, we'll speak with Marshy Shaw, a professor of history at Yale University who teaches the intellectual history of 20th and 21st century Central and Eastern Europe. She's the author of Caviar and Ashes, A Warsaw Generation's Life and Death in Marxism, 1918-1968, The Taste of Ashes, The Afterlife of Totalitarianism in Eastern Europe, and The Ukrainian Night, An Intimate History of Revolution. Her forthcoming book is Eyeglasses Floating in Space, Central European Encounters that Came While Searching for Truth. And we'll assess what might stop Putin, who is murdering a country and its people before our eyes, as the Ukrainians fight for all of us who believe in democracy and the rule of law. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Angela Stent, who is the director of the Center for Eurasian, Russian and East European Affairs and a professor of government and foreign affairs at Georgetown University. She's also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and co-chairs its Hewlett Forum on post-Soviet affairs. From 2004 to 2006, she served as National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council. And from 1999 to 2001, she served in the Office of 
Policy Planning at the United States Department of State and is the author of The Limits of Partnership, U.S.-Russian Relations in the 21st Century, and her latest book is Putin's World, Russia Against the West and the Rest. Welcome to Background Briefing, Angela Stent. Good to be back on your program. Well, thanks for joining us, Angela. And uh, on Saturday, President Putin had a 80-minute conversation with the leaders of France and Germany. They urged him to end the war immediately, negotiate with Zelensky, and withdraw from Ukraine. But then on the Russian readout, it's somewhat surreal. They're talking about how their Russians are peacekeepers and they're bringing peace and stability and denazifying Ukraine, while clearly the country is being murdered and its people are being murdered before our eyes. So at what point do you think this Orwellian narrative on the Russian side will start to fray? Well, so far it hasn't frayed and we're in the fourth month now. Uh, This is the parallel reality, really, (laughs) the world in which Putin apparently and his uh, close advisors live. Uh, So on the one hand, as you say, there is a slaughter going on. The Russians are making sort of slow progress uh, in the Donbass, but they have taken nearly all of uh, the Luhansk region over. The Ukrainians are, of course, pushing back, but they desperately need uh, more weapons from the United States and other NATO countries to keep pushing the Russians back. So I think uh, from from the Russian point of view, they're just digging in. They're going to keep trying to take more territory. Um, and, uh, you know, they Putin's goal still remains to take all of Ukraine. And there's been some reporting in recent days uh, that some of, of his advisors in Russia believe that they can even revisit the question of taking Kiev. So this isn't going to be over for a long time. And in terms of the sort of debate within our foreign policy establishment between those who want to increase the arming of Ukraine as Putin intensifies his brutal campaign to destroy the country and those who want to seek a diplomatic solution to end the war. I spoke the other day with Charles Kupchin on that particular subject. Is there a division? I mean, my understanding is that Secretary of State Blinken has always wanted, has always understood what Putin's all about. But in terms of uh, the National Security Council, and Jake Sullivan, apparently they've, been, they've held up the deployment of the multiple launch rocket system, the M- MLRS. There was concerns within the National Security Council that Ukraine could use this new weapon to carry out offensive attacks against Russia. So is there an internecine battle going on within our foreign policy establishment? Well, I think there's certainly those who are more concerned about escalation and others who believe that these um, fears are probably misplaced and we've been so kind of cowed by this fear of escalation that we haven't done enough. Because if we don't supply the Ukrainians with those weapons, then it's going to be very hard for them to keep pushing back against the Russians. Um, I would say President Biden himself has a pretty good understanding of who President Putin is, uh, having known him for a long time. Uh, and so I think he certainly, um, I think, is probably less concerned about that. Um, on the other hand, 
you know, he's also been very clear that there will be no no U.S. troops there. In other words, I think that that so far those that are concerned about escalation seem to be prevailing at the moment because that's really the only explanation for why some of these weapons that have been promised and now in this latest forty billion dollar congressional bill, why those weapons haven't actually got to Ukraine yet. And again, I'm speaking with Angela Stantis, the director of the Centre for Eurasian, Russian and East European Affairs and a professor of government and foreign affairs at Georgetown University. She's also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and co-chairs its Hewlett Forum on post-Soviet affairs. And from 2004 to 2006, she served as National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council. And from 1999 to 2001, she served in the Office of Policy Planning at the United States Department of State and is the author of The Limits of Partnership, U.S.-Russian Relations in the 21st Century. And the latest book is Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the Rest. So if this is going to go on for months or even longer, is there two ways to look at it? In other words, militarily, obviously the Russians haven't been doing as well as Putin expected or was told. And I don't know that Putin can get his head around Perhaps one of the main reasons why the Russians are not doing so well militarily is that their military has been hollowed out by corruption, that his friend and the chef, Prigozhin, pockets a lot of the money they're supposed to feed the troops, and apparently they bought cheap Chinese tires that, that break down and the tr- stalls these trucks and military vehicles on the roads, etc. So it does seem, though, on the other hand, economically, as much as we're sanctioning Putin He's making, what, a billion a day from West Europe, from Germany, for gas. He's making a billion a day from from oil sales to India and more other, other places as well. And the price of oil has gone up enormously. So how would you balance this out between the military failures in, in Ukraine vis-a-vis uh, how he's doing economically? And he does seem to be in league uh, with MBS in Saudi Arabia and MBZ in in the Emirates on OPEC Plus. So uh, I'm not sure whether he's winning or losing. How would you how would you put it? Well, economically, Russia is feeling the the pinch of the sanctions um, certainly, and they'll feel more as these export controls. Uh, uh, you know, as the months go on and they're unable to get spare parts, uh, semiconductors. I mean, we now hear uh, stories about that they have to take components from washing machines and then transfer them to their military hardware to keep them working. Um, so they, they are feeling the pinch of sanctions. But of course, as long as the rest of the world keeps buying Russian oil and gas, Uh, Their coffers are filled. And as you say, uh, the the OPEC plus deal is working. um, And so oil prices are are very high Um, and they will continue to do this, I think, for the foreseeable future, because the European Union cannot agree on an oil embargo against Russia because the Hungarians particularly and then even some other countries don't want to go along. And we understand that Italy and other countries have already made kind of carve out deals on gas and Germany is certainly. Uh, not going to wean itself of Russian gas for some time. Um, so, so in that sense, they're not doing as badly economically as uh, as people thought they might. 
from these sanctions. Now, militarily, as you say, the, the corruption that pervades Russian society has certainly pervaded the military. Uh, there are stories today that they're crowdfunding in Russia uh, just to supply basic um, equipment, clothing, everything uh, to the Russian troops. Um, and they haven't performed as well, but still um, Russia has the potential to call up far more people. And uh, I was just looking at a picture before I came on of a recruitment center in St. Petersburg uh, now trying to get more Russians to sign up, to sign military contracts. Until now, they've been sending these young men from a lot of the provincial areas, rural depressed areas. Um, and, and so in a sense, there's been less opposition there because the families who live there you know, know less about what's going on than, let's say, the urban elites. But if they're now starting to take people from the major cities like St. Petersburg, um, one wonders what the implications will then be for the for the people who live there and who do understand more about what's really going on. And the why do they cast their net for conscription and contract soldiers, uh, particularly, I think the more the danger uh, that you will have more opposition to the war. But having said that, uh, a majority of the Russians do still appear to be solidly behind the war. There was a recent article in Foreign Affairs by Nina Khrushcheva, the great-granddaughter of Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev, where she makes the case that Russia has become a security state under Putin. And uh, I recently interviewed uh, Robert Baer, a former CIA officer, has a new book called The Fourth Man, which is about the mole hunters in the CIA and the FBI who caught Hansen and Ames and Howard, the spies for the Russians within the CIA and the FBI, but they believe that there's a fourth man. And that book and that and his argument is that, in effect, because of these Russian spies within our intelligence services, the U.S. was blind about what was happening in Russia, particularly at the time when Putin emerged. And the argument is that that was the most significant thing that happened in Russia that from Yeltsin to Putin in the way that von Hindenburg's allowing Hitler to become chancellor in 1933. That's this historical analogy that Bear makes. So do you buy that at all, Angela? That we missed it, that, that we didn't, uh, we missed Putin? That Putin, in effect, brought in this security state. Maybe the the KGB were always behind the scenes, certainly when, uh, with Andropov when Brezhnev was the ailing leader. But now uh, they're no longer behind the scenes. They control the entire country. Well, I think there's a, a great deal uh, to that argument. I mean, in the Soviet period, the Communist Party... Um, you know, controlled the security services. Right, Russia is now run uh, by the intelligence services in a way that it's never been in its entire thousand years of its history. So when Yeltsin was president, um, you know, he was asked, and his former foreign minister, Andrei Kozarev, has this in his book, um, why didn't he really go after the KGB more. I mean, he divided it up into different services, uh, but he left those intelligence agencies largely unreformed. And Yeltsin had, had said, well, this is the one institution that sort of functioned pretty well by the time the Soviet Union collapsed. So even in the 90s with Yeltsin, uh, you, you had all of these people who were still around and were still in the renamed and redivided up um, intelligence services. Yes, I think we missed 
uh, who Putin was. I remember, you know, when he first became prime minister and then president, you know, the question was, who is Mr. Putin? And the answer, and this was given by someone who was working on the national security at that time, well, uh, there are three Putins. Uh, there's the spook, the economic reformer, and the empty suit. Uh, and we, we have to wait and see which one it is. Well, we now know <laughs> which one it was. And so, and there are those who believe that right from the beginning, um, there was a, pl a plan by Putin and his colleagues from the intelligence services to sort of take over the country in that way, and that they've methodically gone about it. Uh, even if you don't quite believe that, it's it, there are really no institutions that function uh, properly in Russia today. It's a highly personalistic regime, and it is run by people from the intelligence services, Putin, and all of the, the people around him, even the prime minister, who's known as a technocrat, Mr. Mishustin, um, his father was in the intelligence services. So if you look around, the intelligence services are everywhere. Um, and that is why it's so hard to understand what's going on, um, the decision-making processes. It was always hard to do that in the Soviet times, but it's particularly hard now. Um, and, it, and Russia has been taken over by these people. And that means that even, let's say Mr. Putin were no longer at the, at the head of state uh, in Russia, you would then have to wonder, would he just be succeeded uh, by someone who comes from a similar background? Well, Angela Stent, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate you coming on here today. Thanks. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Angela Stent, who's the director of the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Affairs, and a professor of government and foreign affairs at the Georgetown University. At Georgetown University, she's also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, co-chairs the Hewlett Forum on Post-Soviet Affairs. And from 2004 to 2006, she served as the National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council. And from 1999 to 2001, she served in the Office of Policy Planning at the U.S. Department of State. And she's the author of The Limits of Partnership, U.S.-Russian Relations in the 21st Century. And her latest book is Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the Rest. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into a new report that accuses Russia of inciting genocide and violating several articles of the United Nations Genocide Convention. Now he's helping for destruction. He's a fading confused, and his brain has been mismanaged with great Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Christopher Atwood, a graduate student at Columbia University who spent a number of years in the post-Soviet space working in media, advertising, journalism, and politics. He served as the senior advisor on media communications and journalism to the Susplinist Foundation in Kiev, Ukraine. And his research focuses on contemporary challenges in international relations, the development of national identities in Eastern Europe, and the impact of information campaigns on social, cultural, and political trends. Welcome to Background Briefing, Christopher Atwood. Thank you for having me. 
Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Christopher. Uh, you were an advisor on this legal report that was published last week, uh, signed by 30 leading legal scholars and genocide experts um, accusing Putin and Russia of violating several articles of the United Nations Genocide Convention. The report was put together by the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy and the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. And it's a pretty damning report, but it's pretty evident from anybody that's paying attention that we are watching a country and a people being murdered before our eyes. So there's no doubt, is there, that genocide is going on in Ukraine? Well, uh, so... In terms of our report, uh, the conclusion that we reached, we reached one definitive conclusion, which is there is a serious risk of genocide, which in itself is a violation of the convention. Um, and then we we decide that there's a uh, there are reasonable grounds to conclude that genocide is taking place. Um, so the report itself doesn't say that definitely this would rise to the level of genocide in an international court, but it does say that Russia is in breach of them, uh, is in breach of the uh, convention and of uh, multiple um, articles of the convention. Well, in terms of Article 2 and Article 3, Article 2 of the convention states that genocide is an attempt to commit acts with an intent to destroy in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group in Article 3 concerns the direct and public incitement to commit genocide. And there's no question that there's evidence that Russia has conducted both. But in general, what I find despicable about what's happening uh, is that the Russian military is so hollowed out by corruption and so unprofessional that they're not very good at fighting the Ukrainian soldiers but they're awfully good at looting, raping, murdering, shooting unarmed civilians, old folk, women, children, blowing up buildings, homes indiscriminately. That's what's happening. This is a war as much against civilians as it is against military forces fighting each other. Oh, absolutely. It's it's you know what we found is uh, when you get to the point of incitement, right? There is a uh, there is a national state coordinated propaganda campaign uh, starting from the Kremlin uh, that basically, you know, it takes the denazification rhetoric, which was already uh, grounded in historical, uh, you know, fabrications about Ukrainian national identity and at first, they insisted it was just the government that was uh, the problem. And if you got rid of the government and the army, which had Nazi elements in it, then all of Ukrainian society would welcome uh, their status as uh, brothers of Russia, of brothers of Russia, um, uh, with open arms. Uh, but what they found when they invaded was that they were not welcome, and the rhetoric quickly shifted to suggest that. All Ukrainians who resist this idea of a unified uh, Russian people that includes Russians and Ukrainians, that anyone who resists that must necessarily be a Nazi. And if you're if you have 
you know, the rhetoric of denazification and you understand Nazis as an existential threat to Russia, then, you know, there's an implication here that uh, the only way to totally denazify the country is to, you know, liquidate the Nazis. And if you uh, liquidate the Nazis, um, for example, there's a there's one of the quotes we, we cite in the report is uh, the need to finish off Nazi scum, right? If you're viewing Ukrainians who reject this narrative as Nazi scum and they, they need to be finished off, well, then obviously soldiers are going to uh, act accordingly. And that's what they've been doing. Well, reports from liberated areas, liberated by the Ukrainians, that say that Russian soldiers would come and kick the doors down and point guns at terrified people and say, where are the Nazis? Or, in fact, where are the Banderites going back to the 1920s? So that Russian soldiers have been indoctrinated into this lie, have they not? Uh, yes, absolutely. That's, that's sort of what we find in the report, is that you know there's a pattern of evidence that suggests that uh, soldiers are internalizing these propaganda narratives because you have to remember that you know it's it's uh, Putin's essay on the unity of Russians and Ukrainians is required reading for soldiers. Uh, soldiers have an hour of a day of TV time, but what is that TV time? It is news and media, and it's state news and media. So these state narratives are being broadcast to soldiers, and not only that, all of this is happening in an environment where Russia is clamping down more and more and more on opposition media to the point where it's almost non-existent. So when you have these people, uh, soldiers, but you know, average citizens included, hearing the same message over and over that Ukrainians are Nazis. You know, one of the, in, uh, in March, one of the big narratives that we found was that uh, they started saying, we didn't realize how many of them were Nazis. We didn't realize that it was so many of them. Well, once you start saying that to soldiers and once soldiers interact with these people, uh, you know, there, I think we, we cite in, in we cite one incident in our report where um, a soldier or soldiers took someone away for having a Ukrainian coat of arms tattoo because that was a Nazi symbol. I mean, it's 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 pretty blatant that. Right, right now we're saying that yeah, these soldiers have internalized this these these narratives, this propaganda, and they're acting on it, and it's unfortunate and it's horrific. And again, I'm speaking with Christopher Atwood, who's a graduate student at Columbia University, who spent a number of years in the post-Soviet space working in media, advertising, journalism, and politics. He served as a senior advisor on media communications and journalism at the Susplanist Foundation in Kiev, Ukraine, and his research focuses on contemporary challenges to international relations, the development of national identities in Eastern Europe, and the impact of information campaigns on social, cultural, and political trends. And he was an advisor to a new report published uh, last week by the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy and the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. So in terms of if this war ends, and there's a big if about it, and frankly, it doesn't look as if Putin is interested in ending the war. On Saturday, Emmanuel Macron and Olaf Scholz, the presidents of France and Germany, had a three-way telephone conversation with Vladimir Putin, uh, which lasted for 80 minutes, and they wanted him to engage in direct, serious negotiations, and he wasn't apparently interested uh, and he kept insisting that the real problem was that the West was providing 
dangerous weapons to Ukraine and this risks further destabilization and that, that these weapon deliveries to Ukraine were dangerous. So it doesn't seem as if Putin has any interest in any kind of um, ceasefire. And the Ukrainians believe if there were a ceasefire, the Russians would only regroup and get in a better position to resume the war. And things aren't going that well in the Donbass for Ukraine. Russia is throwing everything at them at the moment. So do you think that there's any chance or any reason to believe that you could negotiate with Putin? Because it doesn't seem that way to me. Well, you know, based based on the findings of our report, uh, I think that, you know, any idea of negotiating with Putin would need to, you know, understand that you know, there's, as as we firmly conclude, there's a re, there, there's a, a, a serious risk that genocide is occurring. There's a serious risk of genocide, um, and you can infer that genocide is occurring reasonably with based on our report. So any attempt to negotiate with Putin would essentially be subjecting Ukrainians in occupied areas to continued genocide. Um, it would you're essentially asking Ukrainians um, to accept that their citizens, that their people in occupied areas are going to be uh, continually be victims of horrific atrocities. Um, for the sake of, as you said, right, like Putin doesn't seem interested. He's never seemed interested in any kind of ceasefire or any kind of serious peace, right? He wants uh, regime change, and it's pretty clear that he wants uh, a Ukraine that is subservient to Russia with Ukrainians who are subservient to Russians. Um, you know, we find in the report that, uh, you know, this, this state narrative uh, targets and uh, suggest that any Ukrainian who views themselves as a distinct Ukrainian who is distinct from Russians, um, as somebody who should be targeted, uh, somebody who should be targeted for punishment, uh, either for treason, because they're rejecting their real Russian identity, or for Nazism, because you must be a Nazi if you don't believe that Ukrainians are, and Russians are the same people. So... Yeah, no, it, it doesn't. I, I, I certainly don't see any. Um, I certainly you know, personally, in a, in a personal capacity, I don't see any any you know grounds to be hopeful that Putin will come to the table and genuinely want peace. And I'm not sure that you should or that anybody really can uh, uh, pressure Ukrainians into onto that table, especially looking at our report when you see what is happening in the occupied areas to Ukrainians. So on the other hand, the Ukrainians believe that the only solution is total victory. And that is really hard to attain, is it not? I mean, to dislodge the, the Russians from the territory that they've taken. And they seem to be taking more territory now in the Donbass. So this looks as if it's a standoff, does it not? It, it Yeah, I mean... I. That, that is a question that, um, you know, I've spoken to plenty of uh, military people, or military experts who, who understand these things better than I do. And, yeah, it looks like an incredibly difficult uh, situation, obviously. Um, I, I do not know what the solution to this is. Um, I do know that, you know, as, as you alluded to, Putin has made absolutely no 
indication, has offered no indication that he is willing to seriously look for a peace. Um, and really, you know, I mean, the, the first step that he would need to take, I think, um, to uh, uh, setting, s sitting down to the table to uh, negotiate a peace would be to stop carrying out uh, these atrocities, to, to, to prevent them, to stop them. Um, but I don't know that we're going to see that. And so I, I really don't know what the way forward is for, for any party. And what do your sources tell you then, Christopher, about possible fracturing within Russia itself, within the military? As I mentioned, the military has been hollowed out by corruption and the soldiers are ill-trained, ill-fed, ill-equipped. You know, for example, Putin's buddy, Prigozhin, his chef, uh, is in charge of procurement for the military and, and he takes about 80% of the money and pockets it. So the, the soldiers aren't properly fed and they, a lot of the, their vehicles are breaking down because they bought cheap Chinese tires for the vehicles, etc. Mm -hmm. So that seems to be, the morale does not seem to be good uh, on the Russian side and that I think that contributes to their brutal recklessness in shooting at civilians and getting drunk and looting houses and stealing everything they can get their hands on. So that also feeds into what you're talking about in terms of uh, genocide. But in Russia itself, there are some reports that within the elites there's some, there's some fracturing, although the Siloviki control the country and uh, Putin has a massive Praetorian guard with the presidential security section that he developed himself. So he's insulated against a coup, at least he is, or he thinks he is. So as much as there's a standoff that the Ukrainians want total victory, which seems impossible, Russia wants to completely conquer the country and and turn it into a vassal. The only other possibility might be within Russia itself, that something could change in Russia itself to stop the slaughter. Well, I think that, um, you know, that, that, that's definitely something that I've, I've heard a lot of. I've heard a lot of speculation about that. Um, you know, I can't speak to it personally uh, in terms of how likely or unlikely it is. I will say that uh, there was a new poll I saw from Russia recently. I, I don't remember exactly when I saw it. It was in the last few days um, that said that uh, support for the uh for continuing the uh, war is around 55%. Um, obviously, it's a poll during a war, and you know it's difficult to interpret any kind of poll like that. But you know, it it it's certainly within the realm of possibility. I know it's certainly something that a lot of Ukrainians are hoping for, um, because I th and I think you know one of the things that uh, one of my takeaways. Uh, as a regional specialist, while I was doing a lot of the research for this report, uh, along with my colleagues, um, was that, you know, a lot of these narratives that we see are ultimately rooted in, you know, seemingly benign things, right? The, the idea of brotherly people who live next to one another, you know, itself isn't exactly a, you know, genocidal narrative. But it's being manipulated and turned into that. And, you know, when you look back into history, you sort of see that, right? Like the persecutions against uh, Ukrainians was always done under the guise of targeting bourgeois nationalists who threatened the unity of the Ukrainian and Russian people. So, 
you know, I think that um, what a lot of Ukrainians are hoping for is a uh, is a shift somehow in Russia, uh, not only in terms of leadership, but also in terms of how Russians understand their own history and understand their own relationship to the rest of the Slavic world, um, and hopefully becoming actually uh, more like more like brothers and less like a uh, invading force who uh, is carrying out mass atrocities. So just in closing then, uh, Christopher Atwood, how do uh, our listeners get hold of uh, this report on the fact that uh, Moscow is inciting genocide and committing atrocities intended to destroy the Ukrainian people? It's a study that you were advisor to by the yes. New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy and the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. Um, yeah, so the, the official title of the report is exactly an independent legal analysis of the Russian Federation's breaches of the Genocide Convention in Ukraine and the duty to prevent. Um, uh, if you if you Google that title, I think you should end up on the New Lines Institute website. Um, I know the Raoul Wallenberg Center also uh, posted on their website. New Lines Institute website is newlinesinstitute.org. Um, and you can certainly find it there. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's an incredibly important document to read. Um, you know, even if some of your listeners aren't necessarily uh, legally minded, um, it, we, we document a lot of things and it's in a very just matter of fact language. And we, I, I think, I think I'm obviously I'm, I'm always an advisor on the, on the report, but I think that we did a, a, a pretty good job of just laying out the narratives and then laying out the atrocities and drawing a completely fair conclusion from that. Christopher Atwood, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Christopher Atwood, who's a graduate student at Columbia University, who spent a number of years in post-Soviet space working in media, advertising, journalism, politics. He served as a senior advisor on media communications and journalism at the Supsplanist Foundation in Kiev, Ukraine, and his research focuses on contemporary challenges in international relations, the development of national identities in Eastern Europe, and the impact of information campaigns on social, cultural, and political trends. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back assessing what might stop Putin, who was murdering a country and its people before our eyes, as the Ukrainians fight for all of us who believe in democracy and the rule of law. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Marcy Shaw, who's a professor of history at Yale University, who teaches the intellectual history of 20th and 21st century Central and Eastern Europe. She's the author of Caviar and Ashes, A Warsaw Generation's Life and Death in Marxism, 1918-1968, to The Taste of Ashes, The Afterlife of Totalitarianism in Eastern Europe, and The Ukrainian Night, 
An Intimate History of Revolution, and her forthcoming book is Eyeglasses Floating in Space, Central European Encounters that Came About While Searching for Truth. Welcome to Background Briefing, Marcy Shaw. Thank you so much for inviting me again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And on uh, Friday, speaking before the NRA in Houston, President, former President Trump said that we shouldn't be giving money to Ukraine. Instead, we should be using the money to turn our schools into prisons and to arm more Americans. So if this war drags on, do you think the isolationist wing uh, of the GOP, which Trump effectively controls, will have more sway in this country? God, I hope not. I'm not very good at predicting things. Historians are really only good at explaining what's already happened in the best case, and perhaps in giving you some insights to think about um, what is happening at the moment. Um, I'm, I'm terrified of that. Obviously, mass incarceration is a huge and perverse problem in this country, and empirically speaking, I'm, I'm sure it hasn't escaped people's notice that the fact that we have so many people in prison has not made us safer. In fact, it's made us less safe. And the fact that we have so many guns in circulation has not made us safer. It's made us less safe. You know, other countries don't have this problem with people coming into schools and carrying out mass shootings. And it's not because other countries don't have mentally ill people or people who are angry or people who are looking for scapegoats. But it's not the case in other places that you can just pop into a Walmart and pick up a you know, toothpaste and a monopoly set and a Kalashnikov. So in contrast, on Friday at the graduation at the Naval Academy in Annapolis, uh, President Biden said, not only is Putin trying to take over Ukraine, he's literally trying to wipe out the culture and the identity of the Ukrainian people, attacking schools, nurseries, hospitals, museums, with no other purpose than to eliminate a culture. So we are all sort of watching, in effect, a country and a people murdered before our eyes. And again, do you think that the American people are going to demand more, or are they going to follow Trump's cue? That's an excellent question. I mean, one thing I can say, you know, in this whole gruesome nightmare that we have been watching play out in real time, and we're watching mass slaughter in real time now that we're an age in the internet. Um, but the one thing I can say is that I feel like the press coverage and the American response here has been much better than I ever remember it being. I feel like American journalists were much more well-prepared than they had been eight years ago. Of course, they had the experience of Trump. They now have the experience of post-truth. Um, I felt like both in during the Ukrainian revolution of 2013, 2014, and then when Trump came on the American political scene, American journalists were unprepared. I mean, there was people were used to fact-checking individual pieces of information. They were not used to a total unhinging from empirical reality. Um, but they have gotten much better. And the questions I've gotten from journalists um, since this war began and the preparation, the questions I've gotten from students, the questions I've gotten from policy-related audiences have been very good. Um, and so that that makes me hopeful that there is at least a significant you know, 
portion of the American population who, you know, is taking this very seriously. Now, of course, this is a deeply divided country. And there are, of course, divisions within the foreign policy elite in this country. And at the World Economic Forum in Davos uh, this week, uh, Henry Kissinger said that he felt that Ukraine should give up territory to negotiate a settlement. And ideally, the dividing line would be a return to the status quo, meaning that the Russians would keep uh, Crimea and parts of the Donbass. And Kissinger went on to say that pursuing the war beyond that point would be would not be about the freedom of Ukraine, but a new war against Russia itself, to which President Zelensky rather angrily replied that, I get the sense that instead of the year 2022, Mr. Kissinger has 1938 on his calendar, referring to, of course, the year that uh, Kissinger and his family left Hitler's Germany for New York. And then Zelensky went on to say, nobody heard from him then, that it was necessary to adapt to the Nazis instead of fleeing them or fighting them. So what do you make of those of these divisions within the, our foreign policy elite? You know, either double down and help Zelensky or try and sort of urge him to make a settlement. And it seems so incredibly evident that Putin himself is not interested in settlement. He, on Saturday, he had an 80-minute phone conversation with the presidents of France and Germany, and they insisted on an immediate ceasefire and a withdrawal of Russian troops, and Putin had no interest in that and was, in fact, accusing the uh, West of um, dangerously escalating by arming Ukraine. So what do you make of these divisions within our foreign policy elites? Um, well, first, let me say I thought Zelensky's response was quite brilliant. Um, I'm not a foreign policy expert, but I can say my sense of how Henry Kissinger understands Putin. And he has a relationship with Putin. And he's met with Putin. You know, they've been in dialogue for a number of years now. For Henry Kissinger, geopolitics, foreign policy is, is a chess game. You know, he is, or at least was in his prime, you know, a master chess player. And I think he sees Putin as a master chess player. And in the sense, Putin is not an enemy, he's an opponent. You know, and you have to have a certain respect for opponents who can play the game at a very high level, because it's only very interesting for you if it's played at a high level. And in the sense, Henry Kissinger just may be an extreme example of a much more general paradigm that is common to political science and foreign policy, which is that the chess metaphor, you know, that geopolitics, foreign policy, you know, international relations, you know, is an elaborate chess game, you know, and you're playing at a very high level. Sometimes for somebody like Henry Kissinger, you've got to sacrifice some pawns to get a rook. Um, and that that creates a certain... I mean, a certain kind of coldness that is necessary. You've got to sacrifice some pawns to get a rook and what, when those, what happens when those are real people. But also there's an expectation that everybody is respecting certain rules of the game. You don't get to go into your chess mass and make up the rules. There are a certain number of squares on the board. Um, most of political science, to an extent, is based on the paradigm that all things being equal, people will act rationally. And I think this is one of a much more a general division between political scientists and historians, because from the point of view of history, 
you know that people don't act rationally because history is just drowning in empirical examples of the fact that people act irrationally all the time. And to claim that people will act rationally is to expand the definition of rationality so broadly that as to, in effect, render it meaningless. You know, so I think most historians will say, of course, you can't expect people to act rationally. And once you get to literature, people, they would tell you, I think, that if everybody acted rationally, there would be no such thing as literature. Um, And, of course, sometimes some people act rationally. You can argue that at other points, you know, earlier in his life or in certain kinds of junctures that you could analyze, Putin had strategic interests that could be followed. I don't think personally Putin at this moment is a rational actor. Um, I think not only is he not a rational actor who cannot be assumed to play by rules of the game. What happens when someone comes into the chess tournament and takes the board and throws it at the ceiling and all the pieces fly all over the place? Then what are you going to do? I think he's also someone for whom other people's lives mean absolutely nothing. You know, and if other people's lives mean absolutely nothing, that's an extraordinary liberation from all constraints, because then you have a free hand, then there's nothing to hold you back. And again, I'm speaking with Marcia Shaw, who's a professor of history at Yale University, who teaches the intellectual history of 20th and 21st century Central and Eastern Europe. She's the author of Caviar and Ashes, A Warsaw Generation's Life and Death in Marxism, 1918 to 1968, The Taste of Ashes, The Afterlife of Totalitarianism in Eastern Europe, and Ukrainian Night, An Intimate History of Revolution. And the forthcoming book is Eyeglasses Floating in Space, Central European Encounters that Came About While Searching for Truth. Well, in terms of Kissinger, I mean, there are lots of pawns out there that in mass graves in Indonesia, in Cambodia, the Kurds who were sold out by Kissinger in uh, Chile as well. So he has a record of, of a kind of brutal kind of realpolitik. And I'm not sure in the end of the day that realpolitik, the idea that you act according to your interests, not according to your your values, works in any tangible way because the you know what we're talking about what's happening in ukraine is a moral issue more than a political issue it's just the slaughter of innocence i mean putin and his military who are performing incredibly badly are awfully good at killing women and children and blowing up buildings and houses and just devastating the country and uh, i don't know whether sitting down with the guy that seems more and more irrational is particularly useful because it does seem that Putin is more and more isolated in the way that Hitler and Stalin were from reality, surrounded by sycophants. Angela Merkel, when she was in office, she used to regularly call Putin for no other reason than to just to talk to him, to, to let him know that there was a reality beyond what he was getting because she knew he was getting bad advice. And when, you, when you're surrounded by people, your number one advisor is Nikolai Petrushev, who's a complete nutcase. It's, <laughs> it's scary. I mean, it's, this is like Hitler in the bunker, isn't it? Because now, just as Hitler was, micromanaging the military and making terrible mistakes, apparently Putin is doing the same thing. He's micromanaging the military. So... These sound like provocative analogies, but I think they're not. It is a classic problem of dictatorships to be surrounded by psychophants. In this case, there's an overdetermination. You know, there is. You know, Putin was already unhinged after Angela Merkel met with him in 
2014, I think right after those so-called little green men showed up in Crimea, the statement she made to the German press was, er lebt in seiner eigenen Welt. You know, he's living in his own world. So we, we started out with somebody like that. You know, in the time that's passed, there were two years of COVID isolation. I mean, he seems to have become more and more isolated. He's destroying Russia, you know, in all sorts of different ways. I mean, he is turning, you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of young men into murderers. Whatever happens to them, they will never be okay again. You know, they will all have been implicated. They will all have blood on their hands. Ukrainians will hate the Russians for the next two generations, you know, at least, whereas that had not been the case before. You know, the economy is, is crashing. Russia is being cut off from the rest of the world. People will no longer be able to travel. He's destroying his own country. I mean, whatever real reasons exist for this war, they exist inside the head of, of this one man. You know, and to try to negotiate with him is to expand your definition of rationality so that any particular subjective feeling he might have, you know, is deemed rational, you know, and is something that a conversation can be begun with. And I don't think that's true. I mean, I, I don't have any privileged epistemological access to what's going on inside Putin's head. But I think this is a situation where he has to fall completely. That whole regime, you know, the whole, his whole fascist regime, we call it fascist, we can call it neo-totalitarian, we can use all sorts of historical analogies. It has to fall and there has to be a reset. I don't think that any kind of, well, let's like redraw the line here, you know, is going to work. But unfortunately, there's an alternative reality in a way. As badly as Putin's military are doing, although apparently they are making gains in the Donbass, in contrast, he's doing well in terms of the West Europeans are still giving him a billion dollars a day for Russian gas. The, the, uh, India is giving him a, a billion dollars a day for oil. He's working with Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed, the MBS in Saudi Arabia and M MBC in the Emirates who are working with him to work against Biden. In fact, they're making huge windfalls out of the price of oil. Ever since the Ukraine war, uh, the price of oil has keeps shooting up. So they're making out like bandits. MBZ and MBS are building a war chest and they're going to fund Trump's comeback. They already gave a down payment to Kushner of $2 billion. And Putin, of course, would whatever interference he gave in 2016 in the U.S. election, uh, now he's free to really help along with the money that MBS and MBZ will be spending to bring back Trump. So they have a strategy. I don't know what our counter-strategy is. Do you? Well, first of all, this, this terrifies me. Um, I Again, what, what you know as a historian is not what will happen. You know what can happen, you know, and what can happen is that anything, you know, everything is possible at, the, at this point. I mean, if there were ever a wake-up call that the whole world should be going to clean energy, this is clearly that wake-up call. I think one, one analogy I've, I've used when I've tried to talk to Americans about what's happening in Ukraine, um, to go back to Trump, you know, is imagine January 6th had gone the other way. We were a hair's breadth from a fascist coup in this country. Imagine we were living under a Trumpist fascist dictatorship and Trump decides that making America great again, you know, is taking over the, the North American content. 
continents. You know, suppose, you know, he decided that we were going to invade Canada, you know, and start carpet bombing Toronto, you know, and decimating maternity wards and kindergartens. You know, would anybody say, well, you know, really, they, they all speak English there. And it's a very similar culture. They also eat hamburgers and French fries. And lots of people in Philadelphia have cousins in Toronto. And so really, it's not so different. And we could have been in a very similar situation. And people think, well, that's not a conceivable scenario. But was it a conceivable scenario, you know, that there would be a storming of the Capitol building until it happened? Well, it is extraordinary that we seem to be sleepwalking in terms of the massive voter suppression that's underway and the fact that the real struggle in the world is not so much an ideological struggle as we had during the Cold War, but a struggle between frail democracies and the rule of law and the encroachment of kleptocracies and autocracies and gangster government. That's what Putin offers. That's what you have with Orban and Erdogan, two spoilers that are helping Putin. And then you've got MBZ and MBS. So you've got a combination of kleptocratic fascists and feudalists trying to take over the world and money talks. In that sense, too, the Ukrainians are fighting for all of us. You know, I, I don't, when we send weapons to Ukraine, and I realize I'm not a neutral observer because, you know, I'm a Slavicist. I have a lot of friends and colleagues there. I have a lot of former students to whom I've taught Kant and Kolokolsky and Shestov who are now fighting in this war. But I don't think it's just about Ukraine. You know, I think this is you know, very possibly the beginning of the Third World War. I think they are fighting for all of us. You know, and I think the fate of the whole world is at stake. I think Putin could very easily decide to blow up the world. You know, and I think our support for them is not charity. I think it's in some sense it's the opposite. They're dying for us. Well, just in closing, uh, Marcy Shaw, there is a division apparently within the White House itself uh, that Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, understands who Putin is and gets it. But it does seem that Jake Sullivan is not quite on board, and he's been holding up the transfer of the multiple launch rocket system which the Ukrainians desperately want. Apparently, Sullivan felt that this system could be used by Ukrainians to carry out offensive attacks against Russia. So apparently that that new system is on its way, even though the Russian commentators are talking about this could be a red line that would be crossed. So at the end of the day, (laughs) who do you think is going to triumph here in terms of the internecine battles within the White House itself? Oh, that I have no privileged access to. Mm-hmm. Um, I I am just, I am hopeful. Like, I am I am desperate. Ukraine has to win this war. I was speaking recently to a, a Polish friend who is one of, who has devoted his whole life, you know, to facilitating dialogue, reconciliation, you know, and, and peace. You know, and I, when I said to him, like, you know, what, what is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen? He said, you know, he said, the Ukraine is going to win. They have to win. You know, there, there's no choice. We have to send weapons and they have to win. And I think a lot of us feel that way. I mean, I'm for me to be for me as somebody who has never picked up a gun, who has never let their children have a squirt gun. My not my son when he was nine begged and pleaded for a nerf gun. I said, absolutely not. There are going to be no no weapons of any kind that or even anything that suggests a weapon in this house. Um and for me to say we have to send, you know, we have to send lethal weapons to Ukraine is a surreal position. I never thought I would be in, but it's absolutely clear to me that they must win. 
Well, Marcia Shaw, I thank you very much for joining us here today. <laughs> thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Marcia Shaw, who's a professor of history at Yale University, who teaches the intellectual history of 20th and 21st century Central and Eastern Europe. She's the author of Caviar and Ashes, A Warsaw Generation's Life and Death in Marxism, 1918 to 1968, The Taste of Ashes, The Afterlife of Totalitarianism in Eastern Europe, and Ukrainian Night, An Intimate History of Revolution. And her forthcoming book is Eyeglasses Floating in Space, Central European Encounters That Came About While Searching for Truth. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared